0: Welcome to our podcast, The Bigger Conversation. This is Tom Neihart with my co-host, B.J. Clear. Today we will be starting with an introduction to the Bible as we set the stage for a bigger conversation about the story of God. We're going to begin by taking a look at the differences between Eastern and Western thought. So, B.J., how important is it to understand the culture and context of Eastern and Western worldviews?
1: Well, as with any story or literature that you're reading the context from which it came is one of the most important things that you can be uh, considering as to what the original authors might have been meaning Um, obviously when we're discussing the Bible we're talking about texts that are three to four thousand years old in the forms that we have them in and they had a very different world experience than what we had they were surrounded by different cultures than what we had they don't have the thousands of years of background that we have today of theological exploration into these types of texts. These are really the the beginnings of uh, a new type of story and a new kind of thought development and theological development that weren't exactly current to uh, other ancient Near Eastern cultures. So I think when we're considering the the texts of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament for the Christians is is uh, it's key to investigate those things.
0: Well, I think that's the big question. Um, the Bible wasn't really written to us in the sense that it was written to an ancient Eastern audience and culture. Uh, we're Western, heavily influenced by the Greek and Roman culture, and the result is that we naturally try to understand things through the lens of the culture we're raised in. Uh, for me, this means. Western, Greek, American. Much of the biblical text, I think, is lost on our culture as we try to explain the text through a Western lens, the more messy it can become. One of the biggest disservices that we've done with the text is to remove the Jewishness from it. I like to picture a room uh, with a window. And wh- what can you see looking through a window? Uh, maybe we can see a couch, a lamp. Maybe a recliner, rocking chair. When we take a look through the window on the other side of the room, maybe we can't see the couch or the rocking chair or the lamp, but this time we can see the TV and the fireplace. Uh, The room hasn't changed. Nothing's been removed or added. We're simply um, looking from a different perspective, seeing things from a different angle. So let's begin uh, by asking questions about the Bible. Who was it written to? What kind of people were they? What what was their culture? So when we answer those questions, we begin to see that the original writers and hearers of the text were Eastern. Moses was a Hebrew, and traditionally he's credited with the first five books of the Bible, and the original hearers would have been Hebrew. And so those are all the things that kind of come into play in this Eastern and Western thought. You were raised born and raised here in south bend right um what do you think about when you um, hear the term michiana i mean it's a local
1: oh yeah there's definitely a geographical oddity outside of the michiana area if you use that word they don't know what you're talking about there is a thing called a kentuckiana down on the south end of the state where it's common vernacular that you have that bleed over of indiana residents and kentucky residents who are living in a in a weird overlap. I think they have an Illiana as well, but my wife from Ohio, she had no idea what Michiana was when, when she came here, and I would just throw that word around, and she would just stare at me. What is, what is that? You had to explain what it, what it was that we lived in this world where you have the southwestern Michigan culture bleeding into the northern central Indiana culture, and People overlapped and traded spaces for work and states.
0: Yeah, that is that is definitely a, a term that is unique to northern Indiana, southern Michigan. Uh, but we understand what we read by the culture that we're most familiar with. And for us, it's we know Michiana because we grew up here. Uh, there's another... Uh, little incident when uh, we moved to uh, Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, Darlington, Indiana area, down just um, west of Indianapolis. Um, We were asking how to get to uh, the best way to get to Lafayette from Darlington. And we were told to take Stockwell Road. Stockwell Road is not on a map, at least not in Montgomery County. Um, It's actually south 700 east. You had to know the culture, had to be a part of the, uh, the local climate to know what Stockwell Road was. And another example of that, pulling an example out of the text, what do we think about when we hear the first lines of Psalm 23? Um, many people that's been in church for years uh, will recognize this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, he makes me lie down in green pastures. When, we, when I think of bountiful green pastures, I think cows sitting out in this big green field where they can eat everything they want and they don't have to move.
1: Yeah, the rolling prairies of the foothills of the Appalachia.
0: When I took my trip to Israel, Turkey in 2016, uh, I was a little bit shocked. Uh, you don't shepherd uh, sheep in the farmland between the Mediterranean and Judean mountains. Uh, you... Um, pasture sheep in the mountains and um, it looks like a bunch of rocks understanding that geographical concept completely changes the understanding of green pastures and so it's kind of a bit of an example of why it's important to understand the culture and the context Uh, when you think about specifics about western culture what what comes to mind
1: oh for western culture i immediately think of uh, philosophical developments over the years our theological contributions our art music theater
0: what are some of the philosophical specifics i mean the way that we think the way that we react the way that we view life
1: oh well in our current context a lot of people are still adhered to the classical Enlightenment values of of reason and and logical arguments that are rooted in the classical stuff. I'm not super versed in in that part of it, but there's definitely a a pattern to the way that we think. That that traces back to the ancients of Plato and Socrates,
0: Aristotle. Yeah. Some of the differences that, um, as I've studied and read, that's come to mind, uh, even things in in the way that we express the idea of truth with ideas, definitions, uh, outlines, lists, bullet points, that all sounds very Western or very American. Uh, But the Hebrew culture would look at that and express truth differently using word pictures, uh, stories, uh, poetry. a lot of imagery and symbolism and we see that scattered throughout uh, throughout the bible um, thinking in terms of numbers uh, where we see numbers primarily as, as quantity looking at it from the Hebrew perspective where we would see maybe five apples on the table ancient culture uh, eastern culture would see um, see the symbolism in the five apples to them five apples would represent the five books of Moses. Uh, and so it's a different little bit different of a twist. Simple math five plus two seven uh, or the books of Moses five plus the tablets of Moses two equals the days of creation seven. So there's a lot of a lot of wordplay a lot of symbolism in the text that uh, quite honestly until 2015-2016 a lot of it was lost on me. Hmm.
1: How has learning that stuff changed the way that you read the Bible and study it?
0: It causes me to slow down and and not breeze past uh, things that I would have just not considered. It gives me pause to think when uh, we read the story of David and Goliath, and David picked up five smooth stones and only, only needed one, but when I think about um, the fact that five represents the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, and I plug that into that story, that gives it just a little bit more, a little bit more depth. Uh, so be things like that that just completely uh, change the way I see the text.
1: Hmm. As a uh, as a teacher, um, do you preach on occasion? I do. How has uh, studying in that new way informed the way that you're preaching and teaching at Bible studies and at Sunday morning services?
0: I spend a whole lot more time in the Old Testament than I ever used to, uh, just because I I see so much more of a tie-in between the Old Testament and the New Testament than I ever did before. Mm. And it just broadens. And brings uh, just a deeper understanding. Hmm. Some of the other things that we uh, would see as a difference. Uh, in this one, I think particularly right now, in uh, our our culture and our communities here, um, is to focus on individualism. Hmm. Um, I mean, we've been taught here in America that individualism is the thing um, we focus on it yeah. uh, the, you know the old Burger King slogan um, have it your way mm. um, everything kind of centers around self and it centers around individualism when in the Hebrew culture a community was one of the most important aspects to, to their life and that is one of the things that feels like it's totally lost in our culture right now so one of the other aspects, uh, and I hear this frequently, maybe you do too, in the people you come across, uh, and the conversations you have with, with people, uh, is the Western culture is enamored with the question of how, mm-hmm. um, wanting to ask how is it possible that this story happened in the Bible? How is it possible that, um, God created in seven days. How is it possible that uh, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days?
1: Looking for the scientific explanations behind the stories, you
2: mean?
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. And the hearers of the original story, uh, the Hebrews, wouldn't have asked the question of how. Uh, The Bible really doesn't seek to answer that question. The Bible really seeks to answer the question of who. Who is God, or or why? Uh, so the focus in the scripture on how it was done um, is definitely a, a Greek uh, thought process, uh, where belief comes as one thinks through validation. Hmm. In, the, in the Hebrew culture, to- truth is.
1: What do you mean by "thinks to prove validation"? You mean to like argue a point?
0: Argue a point. Um, Proof texting it, it is definitely comes out of that of looking to um, answer the question of how, looking to um, pull things out to prove a point where uh, in the Hebrew culture, truth is religious and experiential. Uh, focus on the scripture is more on on what was done and who and why, and the idea that belief comes through experience, not thinking through and having the right knowledge.
1: I don't think that's too different than the scientific process, though. Scientific process, you encounter a new experience that you've never seen before. And, well, maybe it is different. Because after you encounter this new experience, you make a hypothesis on what caused that experience. And then you test your hypothesis by conducting an experience to try to duplicate that experience. But I guess the Hebrew Bible wouldn't work that way, would it?
0: Thinking through the subject of truth, uh, this is where, uh, this might get a little sticky, uh, but the the Western culture, the Greek culture, uh, truth is always static. It's unchanging. It's very, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always going to be. And in the Hebrew culture, Truth is viewed as unfolding, and so it doesn't it doesn't just stay at a fixed point. And that was one of the things that has been very, I think, very crucial for me as I have begun to read and study in in a different in a different way. It's really a little bit for me more about learning how to think Hebrew. Mm. Not that thinking Western and Greek is bad. It's not a sin. It's not wrong. But it's it's a coupling of the two, of the two thought processes. Uh, I heard this example. Uh, it's like a piano piece, where if we allow the Western worldview to to be the left hand, the bass. This is going to be kind of a boring, kind of a one-sided piano piece. But when you add the melody into the right hand, uh, representing the Eastern, the Hebrew worldview, then you have this full, rich, uh, beautiful musical piece. And that's a little bit more of the way that I I view coupling Western worldview and Eastern worldview.
1: So kind of constant statements taken from deep dives into the words themselves in the Western view through an exegesis of what the text says versus a more nuanced approach to it where instead of trying to take out meaning in the text is there an assumed meaning is in our in our in our western way of studying cuz right right now i'm in seminary so we spend a lot of time doing exegesis papers, where you're you're looking at what the um, language is said through through time as it's been translated. You're looking at the literary context of the scripture you're looking at within the piece that's written. So the we use chapters, the chapters preceding and the chapters after it, looking at um, how it fits within. Uh, the corpus that you're looking at how is the way that we study the scripture in that way looking at the literary context the cultural contexts the historical contexts different than how a hebrew or a jewish person would approach the texts
0: on well, some aspect there would be the experiential aspect. Uh, when we think about the story of Abraham, and it, 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 we read through the story, we look at the context, we look at you know, chapters before and after, uh, one of the things that we don't get is how Abraham experienced God, how he experienced God on the mountain when God stayed his hand. We as Westerners, you know, because we like bulleted points and lists and definitions, um, we sometimes pass over those moments.
2: Hmm.
0: And some things we just pass over. We don't. We don't dwell on. We don't think about. Uh, been reading this book um, called uh, "Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes," uh, written by E. Randolph Richards. And um, he's relating a story of a college professor, Mark Allen Powell. Powell is having his seminary students uh, read the story of the prodigal son out of Luke and then um, carefully study it, focus on the details, close their Bibles, and partner up and relay the story out of the 12 seminary students, none of them included the detail in um, uh, verse 14 about the famine. They just, all of them glossed over that. Thinking it was odd, he uh, had the opportunity to do the same thing I mean, with uh, 100 students, um, varied backgrounds. Uh, and out of the 100, 94 of them still omitted that detail in uh, recounting the story to each other. And the six that did, had come from a very varied culture and background. The 94 who passed over it were all from the United States. And so he, he's very, uh, was very interested in this. So he had the opportunity to do the same thing um, on a trip to Russia. And he had 50 individuals do the exact same thing, focus on the story in Luke, uh, retell the story, and 42 out of the 50 felt that the verse about the famine, the fact about the famine, was a very crucial point to the story. And what he found out was in the years, uh, many years prior to uh, this taking place in St. Petersburg, um, mm. they had a huge famine. It was brought on by the uh, World War II. And so it the cultural experience uh, it is what brought that focus
1: right you've never experienced the famine before in the United States that's not have. something noteworthy
0: and so that's one of the things that um, in understanding the different worldview, the eastern worldview is uh, we come from a different place we look at things different we think things think through things different none of the none of the Americans considered the famine to be the crucial part of the story uh, in fact they looked at uh, very much like a westerner uh, the crucial parts of the story was uh, the prodigal son's uh, guilt and, and and shame for being uh, morally bankrupt and wasteful and disrespectful to his father and those that that uh, read and experienced the story uh, from other countries view it as uh, less about those aspects of sin in in the prodigal son, and focus more on God's redemption of a lost son. Hmm. And I can see where uh, use, uh, using the famine to draw the son back would be a different viewpoint than uh, I ran out of money, I ran out of food, uh, I'll go ask my father for forgiveness. Just alters the alters the understanding. Hmm. What was that book? Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes uh, by E. Randolph Richards. Okay. David Foreman, in his book, The Beast That Crouches at the Door, writes about this concept called the lullaby effect. Most of us know the lines to the old lullaby, rockabye baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Uh, Heard that since I was a kid. And I never thought to ask the questions.
1: Who put that baby up there?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Why did they put that baby up there?
0: <laughs> did anyone call 911? Uh,
1: On the parents, who f- put the baby in the treetop?
0: All valid questions. Things we don't ever ask about. The simplest of songs we would sing to put our children to sleep.
1: Yeah, there's lots like that. Ring Around the Rosie. That was about like smallpox or something.
0: That or the plague, something. Yeah. Um,
1: London bridges falling down.
0: All of them, a- and we never, we just don't ask questions. And the same thing's true the text. Um, I grew up in the church, uh, been a part of, part of the church all my life. Never thought to ask questions that should be obvious to ask, I would think. Uh, but I just grew up around it. Yeah.
1: Part of it is the. Uh, The way we teach it to kids. They just get so used to hearing it, you know. Like, when you look at something like uh, Noah's Flood. When you think about the proportions we use in uh, our children's books about Noah's Flood. You have this tiny little boat with these giant animals' heads hanging off the sides of it. Like, they got skyscraper-sized animals in this boat. It doesn't make any sense. We don't question it. But the kids get used to hearing it so much that they stop asking good questions. And that's something I've noticed with our students who are newer to the Christian faith and are still hearing these stories for the first time. As an adult, you ask way better questions when you're reading something and looking at something when it's fresh to you. than when you grew up as a kid with, you know, 98 year old lady with a felt board teaching you these stories,
0: the old flannel graph,
1: that's what it's called. A flannel graph. Tom's yep. wearing a flannel right now.
0: That's my favorite kind of shirt. But almost every major story in the Bible has things that the story just begs us to ask about. And uh, we've grown so accustomed to not asking them. Somebody that's new in the faith may actually think these questions but because they're embarrassed to ask, uh, they don't. Now I can't take credit for these three questions. I've taken them directly from the introduction of uh, David Foreman's book, The Beast that Crouches at the Door. But these three questions, uh, when reading a story from the Bible, um, if I were reading this for the first time, what about it would strike me as strange? That's kind of hard to do as a 52-year-old that's grown up in the church because that requires a massive brain file dump in order to look at something that way. But I try. What are the big questions the text wants me to ask about the story? And the last one, what are the elephants in the room? Uh, I think there would be, just those three questions I think would generate so much dialogue about any Bible story that we could probably go on for a couple hours just on the discussion.
2: Hmm. Uh,
0: But those are the things I want to think about heading into the next podcast and um, some of the differences between the Eastern and Western culture uh, that we've discussed. um, We need to keep those in mind. Uh, And try to think through things not only as Western Americans, but as um, uh, children of God who want to get back to um, how the stories would have been understood by those that originally heard them.
1: That sounds good, Tom. Sounds like something that's really important to you.
0: Something that's very important to me because there are aspects of it that has dramatically reshaped my understanding of the text. And the first place we're going to start is Genesis chapter 1 with the creation story, which just totally blew my mind.
1: So Tom is going to blow minds next time. Until then, thanks for joining us. Remember to ask your questions when you're reading. If I were reading this for the first time, what would strike me as strange? What are the big questions that the text wants me to ask about this story? And what are the elephants in the room?
0: Sounds good. Thanks for joining us.
1: Until next time, have a good one.